Uh, if you've been attending regularly lately, you know that we're in a sermon series, What the Bible is All About, trying to find our place in the overarching story of the Bible, how it all fits together, how it all makes sense, and where I am in that. And this morning, uh, in just a few minutes, we're going to be taking a look at a section of the New Testament uh, called the Epistles or the Letters. And I want to read to you from one of those letters that I think is a fairly clear and, and representative sampling of what those epistles or letters are about and the themes that they raise up. And so I'm going to read this scripture to you from 1 Corinthians, the very first chapter, beginning in verse 10. The Apostle Paul says, I have a serious concern to bring up with you, my friends, using the authority of Jesus, our Master. I'll put it as urgently as I can. You must get along with each other. You must learn to be considerate of one another, cultivating a life in common. I bring this up because some from Chloe's family brought a most disturbing report to my attention that you're fighting among yourselves. I'll tell you exactly what I was told. You're all picking sides, going around saying, I'm on Paul's side, or I'm for Apollos, or Peter is my man, or I'm in the Messiah group. I ask you, has the Messiah been chopped up into little pieces so we can each have a relic all our own? Was Paul crucified for you? Was a single one of you baptized in Paul's name? I was not involved with any of your baptisms except for Crispus and Gaius. And on getting this report, I'm sure glad I wasn't. At least no one can go around saying he was baptized in my name. Come to think of it, I also baptized Stephanus' family. But as far as I can recall, that's it. God didn't send me out to collect a following for myself but to preach the message of what he has done, collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me out to do it with a lot of fancy rhetoric of my own, lest the powerful action at the center, Christ on the cross, be trivialized into mere words. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for Holy Scripture. It's so powerful, and, it's, and yet it's so down to earth. It's just so everyday, ordinary-like. And that's where we live. And today we need your grace and we need your help. There are a lot of broken lives here, a lot of needs here. We pray that you will help us to trust you and to not be anxious. Help us to learn more about living out our repentance, the life change in a daily, practical way. And we pray for a broken world as well. We pray for the refugees who are fleeing for safety from Syria and other places. We pray for the homeless right here in our own community. And we pray, dear God, that you would bless those who are ill today, physically ill, mentally ill, those who are broken and lonely, those who are grieving. And we pray for those who are so far away from you and and they, they sense and feel they're far away from hope. Help them to hear the message of your love, that they might come to know the power of Jesus in their lives. We ask, God, that you would help us, uh, as we take this offering, to remember always how to separate the passing from the permanent, the trivial from the urgent. Help us to set priorities in our lives, and as we give, we declare our freedom from things that we might be invested in kingdom stuff for your glory. Bless this offering through Christ, we pray. Amen.
there are, in our New Testament, 27 books, and 21 of those 27 books are letters, or more exactly, uh, epistles. An epistle is a special kind of letter. Uh, It's a letter that has a very distinctive kind of form, and an epistle was... um, a letter that was for public consumption. It was uh, what we would call today a circular letter or an open letter. But not only the 21 New Testament letters or epistles are are in existence today, but uh, manuscripts or copies of thousands of others of secular, we would call, epistles uh, are, are in existence that have been discovered. And so we know that they have a certain form, a certain form of salutation and greeting at the top certain way that the body of the, the epistle would go, and then a certain way that the conclusion or the sign-off would be accomplished. And so here's another way to say this. The New Testament writers took an old familiar container, the epistle, and they poured the new message of Jesus inside that old familiar container called epistle. They used the communication device that was available to them in that day to share the message of Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul did not write all 21 of our New Testament epistles. Uh, He wrote a lot of them. But here's how Paul worked, and here's how Paul used his letters or epistles. He would go into a community, a city. He would start sharing Jesus Christ with people. He would uh, see people come to faith. He would start discipling them. He would appoint leaders for a new church... And then he would go off to a new city and do the same thing, and he would write back to that first city an epistle to be read in the church and then to be circulated to other churches. In that way, in effect, the Apostle Paul was able to pastor several churches at once. He was multitasking before multitasking was even named because he learned how to use the communication system available in his culture and his time. Now, about the year 100 A.D., about the the beginning of the 2nd century A.D., we have records that the early Christians were quoting the epistles as authoritative. Now, I want you to think about that. As early as 100, just a few decades after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, just a few decades after the Christian faith exploded on the scene, already these documents were being quoted as authoritative. I want to show you a little chronology that will maybe help you uh, as a refresher. We've tried to show you a little bit of a timeline each time we've uh, shared this, uh, various facets of the New Testament, so you can get this sort of a a sense of perspective. Uh, 30 to 65 A.D., the events took place in the book of Acts. Around 34 A.D., Saul of Tarsus was converted changed his name to Paul. Uh, Between 48 and 65 A.D., Paul's travels, his three missionary journeys and his journey to Rome, uh, and he wrote his letters or epistles. And around 65 to 85 A.D., the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written and collected. Now, if you're paying attention, and I know you all are, you'll notice something. That that the, the epistles, the letters were written and circulated before the Gospels were collected and circulated. 
So that means that I am holding in my hand the earliest documents of our faith when I'm holding in my hand these New Testament letters or epistles. That's amazing to think about. And you need to realize we don't have any of the original letters that Paul wrote. We have only copies or manuscripts, but we have hundreds of manuscripts of the New Testament epistles. By comparison, the manuscripts available of Plato's writing, of Sophocles' writing, of Homer's writing are just a handful. But we have hundreds of New Testament manuscripts. What's more, those New Testament manuscripts are older and closer to the time of the actual events, closer to the time of the actual writing of the original ones than are those documents of Homer, Sophocles, and Plato. So these documents are historically reliable. These documents of our faith, these scriptures, are definitely close to the event and historically valid. And that's an important thing to remember. But having said all that, it's, it's actually more important than asking when they were written. The more important question would be, why they were written. Do you know why the New Testament epistles were written? Not just Paul's. You know why all of these New Testament epistles were written? Simple answer. They were written because church life is messy. They were written because they were addressing problems in the church. They were written because they were dealing with real life messiness. If church life had not been messy in Paul's day... He would not have written a lot of these because they're all occasional letters. That means they were written for specific occasions or situations going on in the church. And these epistles were written to help people with messiness. The letter that I read from uh, a few moments ago from 1 Corinthians is is a case in point. Corinthian church, they were a messed up bunch of believers, let me tell you what. They had their problems. In fact, Eugene Peterson in his introduction in the message says about the Corinthians, they were unruly hard-drinking, and sexually promiscuous. And they were all those things. They were a mess. They argued and disagreed. They fussed and they were selfish at times and childish at times. They brought their problems into the church. They brought their unredeemed natures into the church, just like you and I bring our problems into church, our unredeemed natures, our half-redeemed natures into church. All of our human failures here in glaring uh, observation for everyone to see. See, times haven't changed. Church is always messy. But without that messiness, we wouldn't have these 21 New Testament books that address messiness. You heard me read a moment ago. The Apostle Paul wrote the Corinthians and he said, Hey, I got to tell you. Chloe tattled on you. You all are just really, really messed up. You're forming little factions and you're dividing off into little parties depending on who baptized you and who your favorite preacher is. And he said, this isn't the way Jesus Christ wants it to be. We're all one in Christ. But because of that messiness, this epistle, this great epistle was written and we learned so much, not just about the Corinthians, but about us. 
A famous preacher was once uh, approached and uh, somebody said to him, what are the secrets to being a good Christian? He thought for a moment and he said, uh, well, read your Bible every day, pray every day, and then he paused and said, and try to find out as little as possible about what goes on at church. Sometimes it's that way, because church is messy. But as you read through the New Testament, especially the epistles, the letters, some common themes emerge. Over and over again, there are some topics that just keep bubbling up to the top, and you begin to sense that they are central. Now, I I can't list them all, but I want to share with you what I think are three of the biggest and most important of these themes in the letters, the epistles. And the first one is grace. Grace. When Paul opens his letter to the Corinthians, he greets them with grace and peace. And most of his letters open with the word grace. It was a big deal to Paul. Interestingly enough, uh, he kind of rediscovered the word. Here's how it happened. Centuries before Paul was ever born, the Greeks coined a word for how they felt about the beauty of the sky, the majesty of the ocean, and they, they chose that word grace, charis, grace, for beauty, breathtaking beauty. But they found that word also worked for that thing we do when we do something for someone just for the sheer pleasure of doing it. Not because we have to, not because they deserve it, but just for the joy of doing it. And they said, that's grace. They coined that word. But then it sort of just drifted out of the lexicon of common, ordinary language for a long, long time. And then Saul of Tarsus comes along and he's gloriously grabbed by God and he's converted dramatically and he begins to write epistles to churches And he has this flash of genius, I believe, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's like he found that old dusty word that had fallen into disrepair, and he picked it up and he dusted it off, grace. And Paul starts using that word grace to describe what God does when God relentlessly comes after us. When God refuses to give up on us. When God just keeps on loving and keeps on forgiving and keeps on rescuing and keeps on salvaging us, it's grace. It's not because we deserve it. It's not because we earn it. It's not because we're good enough for it. God simply does it out of the sheer joy and pleasure of doing it. Grace. That's powerful. And if you remember verse 17, the last verse I read, the Apostle Paul said, I want you to know that I'm not coming to you with big fancy words. Remember? I'm not coming to you with the power of rhetoric. I don't want you to think that the power of the message is in the words of my my genius. I want you to experience the power in the center of the cross of Christ. See, he's reminding us that we don't earn our salvation. It's not about us. It's not... We don't get good enough to get God to love us. God loves us anyhow. He loves us first. We don't work our way into heaven. We don't 
work our way, bribe our way into being forgiven. God's grace is bigger than that. And Paul says, I don't want you to think that it's the work we do that makes God work. Because the moment we forget grace, that's the moment church gets messy. Because we start believing we're doing this ourselves instead of the power of God. Church gets messy when we forget that. Um, I read a great story about uh, Winston Churchill when he was about 33 years old. He had a healthy ego even back then. Uh, He was dining with some friends at some kind of formal dinner, and I guess they got to talking about theology and about original sin and about the human condition because in the conversation, Churchill said, yes, I believe we're all worms. I just choose to believe that I'm a glow worm. And yes, he did think he was a glowworm. But you know, isn't that the way with all of us? Yeah, we're all sinners, but I just happen to think maybe I glow a little brighter than some of these other sinners who are dull sinners. We're willing to admit we're sinners, but we always like to feel like we're a little bit better. But Paul said, it's all grace. And if you forget that, your church is going to get messed up. It's all grace. A second antidote that the epistles kept circulating in themes to churches and to our church today. The second theme is the cross of Christ. Everywhere you read these epistles, you read about the cross of Jesus. You remember what Paul said in verse 17? He said, I'm not going to let you think that it's the power of my speech. The power of changed lives resides in the cross of Jesus Christ. And he goes on and says in verse 18, we didn't even take time to read that. Verse 18 says, the cross of Jesus is foolishness to those who are dying. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross. It's at the cross that God deals with sin. It's here at the cross that God smashes our pride. It's at the cross that we learn about suffering in our own lives. And it's at the cross that we experience a deeper understanding of servanthood, what it means to really get beyond selfishness, to give ourselves away. And it's at the cross that we discover our mission, that we're to share God's love so unselfishly that we pour our lives out so that others might come to know Jesus. That's the cross. And you know what happens when churches take their eyes off the cross? Churches get messy and messed up. When I was at the Baptist Congress uh, last July in South Africa, I heard Roy Medley, one of our our Baptist leaders, uh, say some profound things about the cross. I want to show you one of the things that he said He said, the church cannot live in a gated community. Believers have to get over our addiction to power, privilege, and prestige. The church cannot forget the cross. You see the implication of what he's saying? That when we forget the cross, we become a gated community. You have to have certain cards or codes to get in. When we forget the cross, we become more addicted to power, to privilege, and to prestige. But he said, don't ever, believers, 
forget the cross. And then he went on and he said this. This is no time for us to be timid about serving or witnessing. This is no time to be timid. And please, let's stop feeling sorry for ourselves. As if we have it so rough in our Christian journey. Let's stop feeling sorry for ourselves. Let's keep our eyes on the cross. And here's the third theme. Constantly lifted up. Addressing messy church. And that third theme is really larger than the other two. And it subsumes all the... It sort of just absorbs and overarches, overshadows all the other themes. And it's the theme of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus. Jesus Christ. Notice how many times in Paul's writing and in the other epistles' writings, they mention Jesus. They talk about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Even in our uh, scripture that I read a moment ago, he started out that, that challenge to those people uh, in verse 10. He says, I'm coming to you in the authority of Jesus our Master. I'm not coming in my own authority. coming in the authority of Jesus. Talked about the, the power of the cross, Jesus the Messiah. It's always about Jesus. If I had one wish for you this morning, it would be the wish that you could meet and fall in love with Jesus Christ in all of his tenderness, in all of his beauty, in all of his power to save that you could meet him, fall in love with him, and establish an ongoing relationship with Jesus. It would change your life. It would change everything. Have you noticed in the four Gospels and in the New Testament letters, these epistles, how attractive Jesus is? How he constantly attracts people to himself like a magnet? Down and out people, people considered by the world hopeless and helpless, people forgotten by the world, as well as people of wealth and substance and intelligence, all kinds of people. Jesus draws people to himself. And you know, uh, I was reading something that one pastor said. He said, You know, the Bible doesn't give us airtight arguments, we don't argue our way into faith, we don't intellectualize our way into trusting Jesus. The Bible doesn't give us airtight arguments. The Bible gives us an airtight person, Jesus. And in him there is no argumentation. In Jesus there is no disappointment. And you may be here in church this morning because you're looking for something more. You know, maybe you've got money. Maybe you've got position. Maybe you have certain things in life. But you're thinking to yourself, there has to be more than this. The more is Jesus. What you need is Jesus and more of him. And maybe you're here this morning because you're struggling and you just know that Jesus is the answer. And you know, maybe you're here this morning and you're sort of turned off by church because church is messy. I just want to remind you the church doesn't save us. Jesus does. We put our trust in him. Churches are going to disappoint. Human beings are going to disappoint. But Jesus never disappoints us. He's airtight. He's solid. You can trust in Jesus. 
Let's pray together. God, we want to ask you now to open our hearts that we might have a new, fresh experience with you. That we might be open to all of the possibilities that your Holy Spirit has for us. Just help us to be honest as we pray and seek your face. Move us beyond sham or shadow into something solid. I'd like for you to keep your eyes closed and bow your head for just a moment and just make this a time of reflection and preparation. I would invite you to just prepare your heart for our response time. If you've never trusted Christ, would you be willing to open your life to come through that simple path of humbling yourself, admitting you can't do this, to repent, that means that's a Bible word for turning and changing life and trusting Him. Maybe you're already trusting Him, but you'd like to just pray with us and share that with us. We invite you to come during our response time. Maybe you're ready to make this your church home, moving your membership. Maybe you want to just come and pray about something. We're going to be here at the front, and we just want each of us to be open and honest before the Spirit during our response time together. Amen. Let's stand together in the